0: Psalm 22, it's not a a poem, it's a song. It occurs to me that sung songs, just ordinary songs, uh, are written because someone thought it would be a good idea to write one. Um, Maybe it was a a creative exercise, or in their foolishness they thought they might make a lot of money. Uh, But down there they just found a guitar or a piano and messed around with moon and... June and Swoon and Baboon and whatever and finished up with, a, with, with an end result. But not all songs are like that, are they? I mean, some songs come out of deep personal emotional experience. I think of uh, Stevie Wonder's song, Isn't She Lovely, written because of his sheer delight in the birth of his first daughter. Or I think of uh, Eric Clapton's uh, Tears in Heaven, written because of the tragedy of his four-year-old son falling from the 94th floor of an apartment building to his death. Uh, That's my generation, Uh, a more modern generation, as the the likes of uh, dear Taylor Swift, who seems to arrange her whole life so that she's got emotional experiences to write songs out of. And, uh, And there we have it. And the Psalms, in a sense, are no different. There's a bunch of psalms which are written because <coughs> something good needed to be said. There are psalms that are written to tell God how good he was and to thank him for it. Psalms to celebrate what had, God had done in the life of his people. Uh, songs written to express trust in God. Songs to record God's history. But there, were, well, there are some songs which are I would describe them as the kind of Stevie Wonder, Eric Clapton Taylor Swift mood, written out of some intense personal experience. And that's Psalm 22 that we're looking together uh, tonight. Uh, not just a song that seemed a good idea, but a song which, it senses a is a heart cry uh, from David. He hears a cry where he's, he's, he's simply saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Why do I feel so alone? Uh, why am I scorned? I'm in trouble, but, but you don't answer me. Uh, I'm the laughingstock of everyone. Here's, here's a guy who is, is crying with anguish from his heart. We have absolutely no idea what was going on in David's life when he wrote this. Uh, but we do know this was about a long period of life not being the way he wanted. This wasn't about a bad Monday morning. This isn't the kind of equivalent of a cry when you drop an iPhone down the toilet. It's not one of those, all right? This is one of these big ones which comes from a a long, ongoing outcome period of desperation. And not just because of his circumstances, but because of what was happening around him. Because if anyone should have coped with life, it would be David. God's chosen anointed, you know, cherished, plucked from... uh, Uh, from ambiguity and obscurity to be someone wonderful, someone who God listened to and responded to. And now people are saying, look at him. He's in a complete mess and mocking him because nothing is happening the way it ought to go. Uh, God trusts him. And David uh, finished up saying, you know, I just feel like a worm. And do you know what strikes me as remarkable about this? What strikes me about it is actually we know this was how David was feeling. That's the remarkable thing to me. Uh, Here's David actually opening up about the innermost beings of his life and the problems he's got. He's talking about being one of God's people who is not making it, who is struggling and not surviving. He's desperate. David takes off his mask of pretense to himself, to his God, but also to the whole people to an extent that it finishes up being in the very hymn book that the nations are going to sing for the next thousand years or so. Uh, that isn't how we do it, folks, is it? If I'm honest. That is not how we tend to operate. Let me show you how we operate. Did you get a mask as you came in? This is your moment to put it on. And thank you for those who made a preemptive strike. It was very effective. Okay. That, this, 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 this is essentially, I think, how we, how, we, how we do it. The very opposite to David. If you've got glasses, it's time to take them off and stumble. I've not put one on because I couldn't see what I'm doing for the next five minutes, so there you are. But just take a look around. This, this seems to me the way we tend to do it uh, as, as God's people, particularly in a, in, in a church setting. Uh, no, no matter how life is like, we kind of want to feel that we are ninja warriors, all right? That we can cope with anything that is going on, and that's the mask we want to present uh, to the people around us. In fact, it seems to me that there are more lies told in church on a Sunday uh, than there are in Parliament for a whole year. And that is saying something. I call it the Sunday morning lie-in. All right? But it can happen of an evening as well. What do I mean? It goes simply like this. You know, you reach someone, you say, uh, I say, Mike, how are you? And he goes, fine. That's right. How are you? Fine. How are you? Fine, how are you? Fine. Or you can be super cool and you say, I'm good. You know, but it basically means the same thing. Uh, there are lies. Uh, my, my, David, my David and Anguish moment was a long moment. happened when we were married, had uh, at that time four kids. And uh, Rosemary, in her mid-thirties, had cancer from which she's now really well incredibly well uh, but suffered a long period of of depression as a result of all went on and then the circumstances in the family meant with four kids our kids life continued to go wrong whenever we saw a light at the end of the tunnel it was always an express train about to mow us down Uh, I had a good Christian leader friend who in the end put his hand on my shoulder and said Peter do you think it's possible uh, that your family is cursed I said that's a happy thought and I began to think he might be true and it was during that time the church we were at which wasn't this one uh I would leave Rosie in bed on a Sunday morning with a darkened room and a cold flannel on her head as I went out and took the kids to to church and, and, and junior church and then I'd find myself encountering people in the church who knew me well and they would ask me that question how are you and after a while I began to realize quite quickly that I'm fine was not the appropriate answer I needed to find another way. And then I started to do something really disconcerting for people. Uh, I realized that this was that to become emotionally incontinent over them was not going to work. I simply, simply said, just about the same. And I watched very worried faces as they went, I wonder how he was last time I asked, because I haven't the slightest idea. And I wonder what that means. And occasionally with someone I really trusted, uh, I'd say, well, look, you know, If you, I appreciate you asking, if you you really want to know, then let's have a coffee sometime and we'll talk about it. It was remarkable how many people didn't take me up on that, but a few did. And I've asked myself, why? In the context of David sharing his whole life and pain so freely with people, why we so keep the masks on. And if you're still wearing the mask, now is to take it off unless you really want to keep it on and it won't trouble me at all. So, so I ask myself the question: Why the lies? Why is it that we tend to keep the masks on? And, and it, the number one, I think it's because actually the person asking the question doesn't really want to know. I discovered that in, in spades when I first went as an adult to America, and we'd walk the first couple of times walked into a department store, and they don't just say "How are you?" They say, "And how are you today?" And, and, and I, I thought, well, that's an interesting question. I said, well, um, I said, well, we're not doing badly. The eggs this morning were a bit overrunny, and I had some trouble on the I-4 getting here. And, and I watched people retreating quietly and looking for a security guard to think there was a madman here. Why? Because how are you is, is kind of like hello, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not, it's not a, a real question. Uh, uh, and there's a shortage of people who really want to ask that question and get to it. Um, and they're not ready to hear it's, uh, it's that. And even when you say it, Rosie would tell you the story of someone who once phoned her up and said, how are you? And she said, uh, it's been a desperate week. And the person at the other end honestly said, praise the Lord. You know, it just hadn't traveled that kind of distance. What's going on? What's the second reason? The second reason is that, uh, is, is that we don't trust them. We simply don't trust them with the the answer. The difficulty is that that we, in our pain, at whatever level, would like prayer and understanding. And our fear is we're going to get gossip and judgment. And we need more within our church family, who with trust and integrity can come alongside and be trusted at that end. And I think the third thing is, we wrongly believe we should be happy all the time. Someone here has got one of those little faces on their uh, number plate on the back of their car, I noticed as I came in. That's very impressed. Uh, but it doesn't always mean you're a happy driver. We, uh, we wrongly believe that as Christians, that when we come into God's kingdom, somehow, you know, the sky is bluer, the birds sing more sweetly, we no longer have any troubles. And, and if something goes wrong, uh, we shouldn't be like that. We wrongly believe that we are intended to be happy all the time. And actually there must be something spiritually wrong with us if we're not. If a moment of sadness comes or life isn't working the way it ought to go or we're frustrated or we move towards David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's something wrong with us, spiritually. Or we've stepped out of God's plan and we feel guilty and ashamed. So even if we're asked the question, we're not willing to be honest. And yet in terms of being happy all the time, it does strike me that... uh, Those words, my God, my God, why are you forsaken me, are echoed by Jesus as he is on the cross. He clearly was someone who was not going to be happy all the time. But as he hung on the cross, he was clearly at the very center of God's plan and purpose for him. And we can find ourselves in those situations as well. With life not being the way we want them, at times suffering incredible pain, But it does not mean we are out of God's will and purpose for us. And so here we are, with Psalm 22 before us, and the challenge that we can do our best to begin taking off our masks, uh, accepting that there are painful places in the world that we need to deal with, there are painful places in our own lives, and we need to find those around us who we can be honest with, and be supportive too as we face the reality together. So how do we move from despair to hope? Because if despair is um, an acceptable and realistic experience of those who are trying to follow God as closely as they can, I can't believe that God wants us to leave us there. And in fact, the worst thing would be that that the despair we experience is something that we then begin to kind of wallow in. I think of that moment where Mo Farah took his tumble and fell. I I, I just feel the despair that must have welled up in his heart as he saw these skinny other legs rushing into the distance. And he could have either sat there and felt miserable about life or he could have got up and carried on running. And that's exactly what he did. And in that situation, he turned despair to hope and to glory. How does that work for us? Well, I think it helps us to understand what despair is. See, despair, as, particularly as we look at this psalm together, despair is essentially me-centered feelings. Me-centered and based on feelings. Let me show you what I mean from the psalm. Here's, here's David saying, uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me so far from my cries of anguish my God I cry out by day but you do not answer by night I find no rest what he's essentially saying in his despair is that he kind of felt he would not have never seen one but you've seen them, kind of felt like that abandoned piece of luggage that goes round that sort of that, you know, that conveyor belt for hour upon hour as people scorn and think, you know, pity upon it. That, that lonely desperation with his me-centred feelings. And he goes on, but I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Despair is me-centred and based on feelings. The very opposite, as we see so clearly from this psalm, is that hope is God-centred and based on facts. And the difference couldn't be more clear. The focus turning from us and our circumstances and how we feel about them to god and what he tells us about ourselves. Uh, and the difference between feelings and facts are crucial, aren't they? I don't know if you've ever been in an equivalent to, to, to this one. It's not the exact description, but it's, it's kind of a, an amalgamation of a bunch of experiences that some of us had. You're driving and you're heading for Birmingham, and the sign says Birmingham to the right, and your map, map which is there for comfort, says right, and your satinette says... In a mile, you will be turning right, and a voice next to you goes, Honey, I think we should be going left. I feel we should. Have you been there? And and you know at that moment there is an enormous difference between feelings and facts. And you have to choose which you follow, even though she may never talk to you again for at least five minutes. And there's people who've been there. Uh, So what it's about, it's, it's facts, not feelings, because as you come there, there are three areas of facts that David turns to. The first thing he talks about is the fact of who God is. Yet, he says, yet, he says, and that word yet is key, isn't it? Yet, he says. Up until then, it's been me, 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 how bad, how bad, how bad, yet. And, you know, big doors can turn on some very small hinges. And that word yet is the key to everything in David's experience And can be the key in everything in ours. Because despite how it feels and despite the focus upon ourselves, yet, he says, yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. He dwells on the fact of who God is. And if I'm honest, I think I spend most of my time focusing on what God has done. Which is fine but it's so easy to miss about what God is like because he is the rock of our salvation. He is the one in in, in whom we have our things. And David points to the fact that you are the Holy One. He's drawing on what God is like. And this is the God that David had revealed to him as being all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, present everywhere, perfect justice, perfect everything. It's not just that we have a great big God, it's that we have the right kind of God. And part of that journey from despair to hope is understanding the character and person and essence of the God that we've come to know and wants to come to know us. The second fact is the fact of of what God has done. David points, he says, in you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered God had done it. You delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. To you they trusted and were not put to shame. Here David calls not just on what God is like, but how God has behaved in history. In history to his people, and we can look at it not only as that history replying to us, but how we've seen God at work. In the lives of others, the transformation that's come, the way he's guide and led and built his church. And the third fact That David draws on is what God has done for him and I think that's really helpful that comes at the end he doesn't start there he starts with what God is like he then moves to what God has done in history then he talks about what God has done and been for him and you probably recognize these words as relating to you too for here he says yet you brought me out of the womb in other words the very fact I have life is a testimony to the fact that you are God And you cause me to trust in you. I don't know where you are in your journey to knowing God personally through Jesus. But if you've made it, it's not because you've suddenly got bright and clever. It's because God has chased you down and drawn him to yourself. If you're part of that journey now and you're sitting here, you're not here by accident. That's part of God's love and mercy to draw you to himself. And if you put them together, essentially it's this. Despair which can be true and real, is not a place to wallow, but we can move from the wallowing because, to, towards hope. Because when we, we, and it happens when we trade self-centered feelings for God-centered facts. There was one other thing that uh, David was very aware of, and that was that this God does not change he understood it from God's dealings, he understood it from the the scriptures that are available, that this God was always going to be like this. We will understand this even more clearly because we have the New Testament to help us. Verses like uh, James writing to a church which were essentially saying, why do troubles come to us? And he writes to them and says, the Father does not change like shifting shadows. Do you understand what that means? Mike, can I have you help? I need a building. Could you be a building for me for a minute? I just, I should say, it's not complicated. There are no words and no movements. Just, just be a building for me, would you? Just, just, just solid there, okay. Okay, here's a building. This is the sun, all right? This is really complicated. Okay, where is the shadow, and how long is it? Yes? Where is the shadow now, and how long is it? Have you got the picture? The shadow has changed... Has the building moved? No. That was really good, Mike. Thank you very much. Do you get the picture? What James is saying, if you want to know what God is like, don't look at the shadows in your life. Look at the God who does not change. In other words, we should not let circumstances tell us about God. We should allow God to tell us about our circumstances. You know, to me, it's not a surprise that This psalm was the one that Jesus turned to when he was upon the cross. If, 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 if we want some understanding of how we can navigate through the times of life when it's painful, we can be encouraged by the fact that this is the very psalm that Jesus chose to turn to in his, his hour of greatest need. Of course, he would have known the psalm as a whole. What may surprise you is that he would have used the whole of the psalm on the cross. You see, we have the first words, don't you? Don't we? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we can imagine that that's where he stopped. But think through the very last words he used on the cross and compare them with the very last words in the psalm. The very last words in the psalm are, He has done it, which can easily be translated, It is finished the time that the Lord Jesus spent on the cross in his greatest need, he turned to a psalm which he knew spoke about him, but he allowed it to speak to him. In fact, get this into your head for a moment. As he began with it is finished and worked through that psalm, the very psalm that we are dealing with today, that we have available to us tonight, is the psalm that Jesus drew on and allowed to nourish him and support him in his moment of greatest need and challenge. And he began with the despair of, my God, where are you? But then moved to remind himself of what kind of God he was, what God had done through history for him and others, and what God was to him personally in a unique way because he was God himself but then just consider just listen to these words and realize that the rest of the psalm would have also been on Jesus heart and mind as he gave his life for us he said this as a result of what he was going through at that moment the poor will eat and be satisfied those who seek the Lord will praise him All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over all the nations. Prophetically, David spoke to him and he is the Lord Jesus. Prophetically using the words in his own heart to what is going to be accomplished through his death on the cross. Posterity will serve him, he says. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness. Declaring to all unborn people, he has done it. It is finished. For Jesus, hope, despair became hope. For us, we experience despair. We have friends, fellow believers who struggle with despair. We need to find ways to be open and supportive of one another to remind ourselves what this God is like to move from feelings that can distract us to facts about God that can change us, and to realize that just as the journey that Jesus meant, which would bring glory, in our own way, God will bring that glory for us. And I'd like to give us an opportunity to respond to that in some way which might be helpful to us. Uh, That that whole song, uh, that, that Shadows, that the the shadows don't change, Uh, that there is no shifting shadows. You may be familiar with that old English hymn, Great is thy faithfulness, there is no shadow of turning with you. That's the reference it's drawing on. But a more contemporary one is uh, that song, Faithful God, So Unchanging, written by a young guy, Brian Dirksen. And he didn't write that because he thought it would be a good idea. He wrote that in a moment of my God, my God, why have you deserted me? He wrote it because he'd sensed over the previous two years that God had called him uh, to write a musical and take it touring around America. And as a result of that, he lost everything. Lost all his money, lost his home, uh, was virtually penniless. And it was in that moment that he wrote faithful God, so unchanging because he knew that his circumstances didn't tell him about God. God was going to tell him about his circumstances. and the moment, we're going to sing that together. Toby, it would be a good time to come now, if you would. And I just thought it would be helpful if we might find a way, if it's helpful to you, uh, to respond in some way to what you've heard. And uh, so there's an opportunity to do something with your mask, which is simply, should you choose to do so, just come and bring it as we begin to sing, just quietly and... Just hang it on one of the arms of the cross. It does work. I have tried it. Why would you do that? For any reason that might be helpful to you. I don't want to be too descriptive. But it might be you. It's your way of saying to yourself, I'd like to listen more clearly to people when I ask them the question, how are they? I'd like to be more available with them. I'd like to be more open and less judgmental. It might be that it's simply you feel that perhaps you should be more honest and open with others or there's a pain you're carrying for yourself or someone else and you'd like to bring it to the cross or perhaps even then it's uh, you're a part of the journey and recognizing what Jesus has done for you this might be your way of saying I'm taking my mask off and I want to hang myself there with Jesus on the cross and receive the forgiveness that it's his it's your choice and your call you don't have to do it but if you feel it might be helpful to you you're very free to do it. So I'm going to suggest we might stand for a moment.